I'm Duncan Hilton. This is the Religious Life Podcast. If you'd like to learn about online classes, read my writing, and get more background about past and future podcast guests, please sign up for my newsletter at duncanhilton.net. You'll also find information there about weekday prayer and meditation groups, which meet online at 5.30 and 6 a.m. Eastern. These ministries are funded entirely by listeners and readers. If you like what you hear, please go to duncanhilton.net and click on the support button. What would a Christian community look like that took seriously working for justice, the wisdom and practices of the Christian tradition, and the insights of contemporary psychology? How could that community draw on the marks of new monasticism and the latest technology to create a community of people dispersed across time zones? How could it form and support people to take vows to a new monastic rhythm of life, to ongoing conversion, and to hearing and responding to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. What would be the right mix of online and in-person gathering? Who would pay the bills? How would success be measured? How would the dispersed community support and train members to seed local projects and communities? I know others who have pondered these questions, but Father Adam Bucko, Episcopal priest, spiritual activist, author, and director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York, has wrestled with these questions in reality in his role as co-founder of the Community of the Incarnation. That community is a dispersed new monastic community based out of the Center for Spiritual Imagination. My conversation with Adam begins with the people and experiences which have shaped him including the martyrdom of his childhood priest in Poland under the communist regime, nonviolent anarchism, his time learning methods of prayer from monastics, and the young people whom he worked with on the streets of New York as co-founder of Reciprocity, and how they taught him the spirit of prayer. In the second half of the podcast, we talk about the story, strategy, structure, and practices of the community of the Incarnation. He shares about his understanding of this moment in time as a collective dark night of the soul, what he's learned setting up the community over the last few years and its current challenges, and more details about what the community does and how anyone can participate. There are a handful of names and terms which may be unfamiliar to listeners. I've posted links in the show notes on my substack with more information, including links for upcoming events online and in person at the community of the incarnation and some of the prayer practices which Adam describes. Adam's newest book, Let Heartbreak Be Your Guide, will be especially helpful for those interested in Adam's theology and story. I left the interview feeling inspired by Adam's work and wanting to know more about how to get involved myself. I hope you will too. God, we offer this conversation to you, fill with it and do with us as that will. Please relieve us of the bondage of ourselves that we may better do that will. Take away our difficulties, the victory over them, may bear witness to those we would help, thy power, thy glory, thy way of life. May we do thy will always. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Thanks for joining me on the show, Adam. I wanted to begin just with a little background about you for folks who may not have had a chance to read your book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, and then we can move from there to more about your ministry. I know you you grew up Catholic in Poland, and priests you knew in your childhood were martyred for resisting the communist regime. And I'm curious, when you look back at your childhood, how the faith and your time in Poland and your experiences as an immigrant in the U.S. have shaped you as a priest and shaped your theology. Yeah, those experiences from my childhood have been very influential. Some of them I'm still wrestling to understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Growing up in Poland at the time, when I was growing up, I was born in 1970. So during the peak of the totalitarian regime, I was able to plug in to this wave that was arising in Poland, which was the wave of solidarity, a specific way of being in relationship uh, with people where we had our own networks of food distribution, sharing information, and all of that was functioning outside of the official state and the official kind of networks that were really governed by one party as only one political party was allowed to exist in Poland. And so there were these priests who were really like Gandhian figures who preached nonviolence, who gathered people in these mass meetings that would take place in churches where they would simply invite us to share our grief, to, to pray out loud, and then somehow to rest with all of that in the divine presence. And of course, in Poland, the main image that we used was that of a Black Madonna. And the story goes that icon of the Black Madonna with two scars on her face was painted on the table that the Last Supper took place. And that's a traditional folk tale that, that is told in Eastern Europe. And that Black Madonna was a powerful image. She had two scars and we were told as children, she has two scars on her face because she's feeling our pain and we can bring our pain to her. And so that icon was so powerful that at some point it became a political prisoner because the replica of that icon was passed from parish to parish and hundreds, if not thousands of people would gather to pay homage, to, to see her, to pray. And then at some point, those gatherings became so powerful that the Secret Service arrested the icon and put her in prison for a few years. And what was passed from parish to parish then was the empty frames. Um, and so we would stare into that emptiness somehow connecting, I think, with the fullness of God's love. So for me, that was a big experience. It was all around me. Prayer was all around me. The church was all around me. And there was this sense that these priests were so powerful because they were grounded in a different kind of reality, a reality that was stronger than the violence of the state. So my parish priest at some point was killed uh, by the government. And I remember I was so identified with the archetype of a priesthood at that time that as a kid, I was literally in my bed at night fearing that they will come for me too. Mm. So all of that really shaped me. It also showed me, I think, that prayer and action are not separate, that action can become contemplation and that both contemplation and action are really one and the same thing if we do them properly. You were a teenager when you came to... I was 17 years old. So I was, that was just two years after the system collapsed. Mm. But one year before the Russian army actually moved out of Poland. Mm. So I saw a lot of changes that took place, but it was still in the process of transition. And then what was it to come to the U.S. and experience... Christianity here, I'm assuming your family still went to Catholic church or did you just stop going altogether? Yes, my family went, but I left the church as a teenager at the moment the system changed because what happened in Poland during the totalitarian regime, the church was this kind of almost like a loving mother that really nourished us and supported us. And then when the system collapsed, the church became more of an abusive parent, all of a sudden trying to grab the power, mm. trying to replace the Communist Party and to run the country. Mm. So that became very obvious to all of us young activists. And we left the church and 
really joined the anarchist youth movement, where we did not reject spirituality, but but we were clear that the institutional religion is not that promising because in the end it always goes to grab the power when, when it's available. A lot of young people were actually influenced, including myself, by Rastafarianism and anarchism. During the 80s, many Rastafarians from the Caribbean, including some very influential voices like Benjamin Zephaniah, who just unfortunately passed away a few weeks ago, the da poet from England, who was of Caribbean heritage, Linton, Quasi Johnson, and others, people from Twinkle Brothers, Norma Grant, started coming to Poland to support young people through this revolution. And with that, they brought a different kind of spirituality, a spirituality that we were able to cultivate outside of the institutional frameworks of the Polish church. So we were inspired by a lot of that, really also focusing on ecology, simple living, vegetarianism, where with that, a lot of sort of liberation theology came, which was already present in Poland. In some ways, our interpretation of the system and what was happening was done through a spiritual lens. Because remember, unlike South America, or Latin America, where a lot of initial liberation theology took place, we were very mistrustful of the Marxist ideology because mm -hmm. that ideology was used to oppress us. And for us young people, uh, Marxism was too right-wing uh, mm -hmm. because at the very heart of it, there is this impulse to, to really engage in capturing the power and uh, enforcing a dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm -hmm. And we saw what happens when that takes place. The, the old bourgeoisie is replaced with what we used to call red bourgeoisie, where the party officials become a de facto privileged persons who have access to all kinds of goods that no one else has. Mm -hmm. So that's why the mixture of radical theology and non-institutional spirituality mixed with some of the better non-violent anarchist components made a lot of sense to us. I have a, a question I want to circle back to later on about what it's like to work at a cathedral given your anarchist tendencies, but I'll I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on that. So don't okay. answer that quite yet. Just to give people a little bit more sense of your formation, you spent 15 years ministering to young people living on the streets of New York City. Part of that, you co-founded the Reciprocity Foundation. And I know in your book, you thank the kids for teaching you to pray. I'm curious if you can share more about how they taught you to pray. Yes, I learned contemplative prayer from people like Father Thomas Keating and others, the whole the Christian ashram movement that took place in India with teachers like Vandana Mataji, who was an Indian Catholic nun, who was also a Hindu Swamini. And she had a small hermitage at the foothills of the Himalayas and were really, was really one of my first teachers. I spent time in monasteries, lived in religious community. I learned the technology of prayer from all of those people, but not necessarily the spirit of it. Mm. Uh, it's really by accompanying those young people struggling with, with homelessness and trauma and racism uh, that I was able, that something uh, cracked in me and opened. And for me, it was very simple. I did the first few years of my work with homeless youth Utilizing all of the skill sets that I learned in graduate school, in different kind of trainings that I've received around psychotherapy and etc. And I was really there somehow believing that my role was to solve their life problems, to be a helper. And that was not working. After a few years of that, I realized that even though 
our kids were completing our programs, they were still ending up on the streets. And some of it was the larger problem of the kind of the nonprofit complex that we were part of. And some of it was how we were engaging with them. And so uh, a mentor of mine advised me to begin to work with every person in a way that I show up for prayer. And so that's what I did every morning when I got to our center, I would spend some time in contemplative prayer. And then what would it mean to approach every person in a way that I show up for prayer way? I would show up in this kind of state of receptivity and curious not knowing, putting everything that I knew aside and just really bearing witness to their pain, bearing witness to whatever it is that they were bringing into our space. And bearing witness in that kind of a way without any kind of professional buffers, so to speak, meant that oftentimes I would just simply break with them as we were witnessing and witnessing again the pain, the abuse that they have experienced. And what I realized in those moments of heartbreak is that as we were there, broken into pieces, so to speak, underneath all of that, there was this presence that would just simply arise in our midst. And mm. if we could say yes to it, all of a sudden the right words would come, the right connections between ideas that I was familiar with or therapeutic interventions would happen, the right way of being present it would just happen. And the only thing about it was that it wasn't really clear who was helping whom, because I was receiving just as much, if not more, as I was giving. And so out of this really emerged this theology of prayer, of contemplative prayer being nothing other than just allowing God to live through us as much and as often as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, it was St. Augustine who said that deep within our hearts, in the most inner cabin of our hearts, there is a sleeping Christ. And our religious lives, the things that we do on some level, allow or help that Christ to wake up. Mm -hmm. And when he does wake up, our goal is to consent to be receptive and to consent so he can begin to live and work and love and protest through us. Where our life becomes what he possesses to express himself in the world, where all of our heartbreaks or difficulties are somehow transfigured into something that can become our unique contribution to each situation, to each person that we met. And so for me, that was really where I discovered the spirit of contemplative prayer. And that's also when I realized that action and prayer are just a continuum. It's not about how they are related. You know, our traditions, including our Christian tradition, have always struggled with the relationship between contemplation and action. But in fact, seeing it from this perspective, action can become contemplation. Here um, that you've learned the technology of prayer from monasteries, folks like Thomas Keating, and you learned the spirit of prayer from your work with kids on the streets. I'm curious how that, after having learned the spirit there, how it's changed your thinking about the technology. Do you do you teach centering prayers? It's taught by Thomas Keating now, or have you? No, I don't. In our community, we've developed what we call the incarnation method of contemplative prayer. And it's slightly different, but it leads to the experience that the centering prayer gives us access to. And I started experimenting with this with homeless youth in my work. Uh, we add some additional kind of concentrative and somatic steps to it. So we start 
with just our breath and arriving into the moment. Then we become aware of all of the things that are present in us, especially those things that we normally don't bring into our prayer. All of the difficulties, all of the feelings of shame, guilt, but also all of the feelings of joy and hope. And we engage in this somatic practice where we literally get in touch with them in different parts of our bodies, bring them to our heart, and then engage in this kind of a cry of the heart where all of that is turned into prayers that we offer to God, where we vocalize those things. In that, we also include some of the heartbreaks of the world and the needs of the world by entering those needs, not just theoretically engaging with them. And then once we are done with the talking part, where at times, if you do that, there will be tears. Afterwards, you will feel completely spent because that's what it means to take your whole staff and, and really bring it to Christ, to vocalize it, to express it. And then after that, we just simply rest in receptive silence. And I think the difference uh, between that and centering prayer in a way, even though some people view this as a kind of new version of centering prayer, is that we don't put anything under the cloud of unknowing, the staff of our lives. We don't just learn how not to pay attention to our feelings or our thoughts as we continue to return to our sacred word, to this state of receptivity on consent. Instead, we actually gather everything that is present, including the world, and show up with all of that. And then rest with all of that in God's presence, inviting God to be with all of that, being in a state of receptivity and consent. So the divine therapist can essentially transfigure our wounds into gifts. And for us, the reason why we do this is because in some ways, and I think we really learned this from St. Benedict and St. Teresa of Avila, and Benedict didn't want people to become too spiritual too quickly. St. Teresa didn't want to necessarily transition people into silence too quickly. Um, I think transitioning into silence and over-spiritualizing things sometimes can produce uh, a spiritual bypass. Um, and we try to avoid that by including all of the stuff of our lives into our prayer. And I've had conversations with Father Thomas about that. I remember many years ago, he was asking me about my practice and I said, I don't know whether that can be called centering prayer anymore. And he said, the instructions that we offer, they're just there to get you started. And then the Holy Spirit takes over and you know how you are meant to pray. And so in that sense, I see the incarnation method as a continuation or a version of centering prayer, because the huge insight of receptivity is still there at the very heart. It's just that we don't bypass the stuff of our lives. Uh, we don't put all of that under the cloud of unknowing, as some medieval texts sometimes encourage us to do, but rather we include all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that sometimes that's an easier way also for people to start. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we have to also look at the historical context. When uh, Christian meditation, which is a version of a mixture of Jesus prayer and a Hindu mantra meditation, but then reconnected with John Cassian and chapter 9 and 10 of his Conferences of the Monks, when that method was developed by John Main and then Centering Prayer by some of the monks from Spencer, we have to remember what was the historical context for that. The historical context for that was that Christians were really engaged with the texts, with vocal prayer, with the liturgy, with reading scripture. And there was no way to transition into silence. So when practitioners from Eastern tradition started showing up at Spencer, asking the monks, hey, what's your method? What can you teach us? They had nothing to offer. 
Because what do you, you can move in with us and live our rhythm of life that includes five to seven times a day doing the divine office and the Eucharist and all that. The kids were interested in something that they could do in the morning and in the evening, something compatible with what they learned from the Insight Meditation Society that is just some miles from their other things. And it was the brilliance of those monks and John Main to really realize that we need something that can transition people from the kind of discursive way of prayer into contemplative kind of prayer. But they were very something that the cri critics of contemplative prayer don't understand. They were not saying that we will produce contemplation because contemplation in the Christian tradition is always a gift. We're just training our system not to miss the gift that mm -hmm. has already been given, right? So it was a huge gift because it enabled people to go further, to graduate from their vocal and discursive prayers into silence, into receptivity. But now we're at a very different situation. Now people who are interested in contemplative prayer within the Christian tradition are not immersed in the tradition, are not familiar with the daily office, are not frequent visitors to, to church services, are not familiar with stories from scripture, which means that there's no kind of a lot of background on that. And then when we just give them silence, that's very nice, but it's not enough. Historically, contemplative prayer has been offered as a whole package kind of a thing where all Christian prayer starts with scripture and then goes through different stages until it becomes contemplation. Of course, the problem was that people were not transitioning to contemplation. So those methods are very helpful. But I think in our community, we are trying to reconnect with the whole tradition and offer the whole package mm -hmm. where prayer is seen as this kind of a threefold thing. The daily office where we are able to really sanctify the hours of our day. Daily contemplative prayer twice a day. Daily Eucharist or at least weekly Eucharist where we can receive the sacrament, where we can bring the stuff of our lives, offer it. And then when the prayers are said, when the, the invocation of the Holy Spirit is done, all of that stuff that we placed on the altar becomes transfigured and we receive it back as this kind of an infusion of Christness into our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And also in our community, the nightly examine and some kind of a form of either practicing the presence inspired by Brother Lawrence or Jesus prayer or any kind of form of kind of monastic mindfulness. So for us, it's important to reclaim the whole package of what spiritual practice is. I, you were talking about historical context. I'm curious how you frame, how you see this moment. You were speaking about it in the context of teaching contemplative prayer, but I'm just thinking more broadly about how to understand our call as Christians. In your book, you quote Dr. Richard Tarnas, a Buddhist teacher who says, I believe that humankind has entered into the most critical stages of a death rebirth mystery. It seems that the entire path of Western civilization has taken humankind and the planet on a trajectory of initi initiatory transformation into a state of spiritual alienation and into an encounter with mortality on a global scale. And then you go on to write, perhaps we're experiencing a dark night that's not about our individual souls. It's about more than that. It's devastating. This darkness is leading to some necessary death, but as our mystics tell us, with such death comes rebirth and new becoming. I'm wondering how you sense that this historical moment shapes what discipleship looks like. Yeah, I think we can approach this question on a few different levels. One very specific level is our engagement in the political discourse and 
how many movements are responding to the present moment. I think that adopting what John of the Cross calls the dark night framework is very helpful. And that framework, even though for John of the Cross, it really means the individual journey, even though he himself experienced some of it when he was imprisoned. So the social reality of it was always involved, but it's really liberation theologians from Latin America, people like Honor de Boff, Gustavo Gutierrez, who expanded eventually to see it as a social process, as a process that kind of engages and includes all life. I think it's very helpful to see the present moment through that lens, because when the dark night happens, what are their instructions? Naturally, our human tendency is to think ourselves out of the situation, to develop new strategies, to come up with things that can help us not to feel the pain, that can help us to manipulate circumstances to create a better solution. And from the dark night perspective, all of that is good, but the danger is that even our solutions will come from the same place that actually inspired the circumstances that we're wrestling with, right? Mm -hmm. Or dictated the circumstances. So the dark night actually invites us into this process of bearing witness, where we actually, what I described on a one-on-one -on -one basis, in my experience of working with youth, you put aside what you know, and you really bear witness to the pain. You allow the reality of the world to penetrate you, to crash you. Um, you allow the kind of natural dying that the helplessness evokes in us or causes to simply take place. And somehow your role there is to sit with it all, to consent to it all, trusting that there will be that impulse of God, that impulse of intuition that will arise and show to you how are you meant to serve this present moment. And consenting to that process does something because it changes our inner structure of self. It transforms us. It, it heals us. And so in my view for Christians, it's actually very helpful to adopt that kind of a framework because that would allow us to engage in the world from a very different place, not from a place of ideology, when even good ideologies have a tendency to otherize people, but rather from a place of solidarity, from a place of interconnectedness of our life, where we understand that in an ecological universe, you can't just take the crap that you don't like and ship it somewhere else. Everything is related to everything, right? Uh, which means that everything needs to become uh, a potential place for transformation. And I think that then also leads to the natural next step, which is nonviolence. Approaching the world from that kind of a perspective, we are discovering, I think, through that practice and that process, a God who is big enough to liberate both the oppressed and the oppressors. Mm. Um, and I think that as Christians, this is our moment uh, to show what that kind of witness looks like. It doesn't mean not naming injustices. It doesn't mean not being strategic when we need to be strategic. It doesn't mean not engaging with our practical skills of organizing. It just means that we subject all of those tools and skills to this mm -hmm. process through which we can discover the actual guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that shouldn't be done alone. That's why this thing about community is very important. We all need to be in communities where we can be known, where there is accountability, where there is mutual support, where we are adopting a similar or the same rule of life, where we are being taught by the Spirit of God together. That's a perfect segue to my next question. So currently you're priest at the Cathedral of the Incarnation and um, in Garden City, New York, which is on Long Island, um, and you're director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination there. And my understanding is that one of the programs is you call New Monasticism, and it's an online 
community, a course in Benedictine, Carmelite, and Franciscan spirituality. And I'll post a link for all this in the show notes so people can um, find out more. But I'm curious, um, given that it's an online community, what you're learning about accountability and mutual support and some of those things you named and what's possible doing online formation and what's not possible. So I, first of all, I wouldn't call it an online community mm. because a lot of the formation takes place online, which means that people from all over the country and sometimes other countries can join. But they're all small groups of local people who gather. For example, quite a few people live in the New York area, and many of us gather on a weekly basis or sometimes bi-weekly or more basis. In terms of what's possible for us, our community is based on a very simple thing. We don't live with each other. That's not our goal. What unites us is our rule of life. And our rule of life is very specific, which means that every day it's focused on three vows, adopting a new monastic rhythm of life, which means that every day you do morning and night prayer, the daily office or divine office, depending on what denomination you're from. Every day you practice twice a day, contemplative prayer, 30 minutes each time. Every day you meditate on the daily scripture and the reading from one of the masters of our tradition. Every day you conclude the day with, uh, with uh, an examine to kind of really see where have you experienced God's presence. In addition to that, uh, every month you have a desert day and uh, every year you have a week in silence, in addition to our community retreats that are in person. Uh, then the second vow is ongoing conversion of life, uh, which means that you invite community into the discernment of your life. You agree to work the 12 steps within your small group that is within the community, meaning that each year you go through all of the 12 steps during Lent, the inventory of your life. You also agree to be in spiritual direction and in psychotherapy. And those are things that are important uh, to us. And finally, you embrace the vision of spiritual life that is not just personal, but also social and political that sort of combines the traditional maps of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila with some of the contemporary psychological and sociological models. And then the last one is to live this spirituality within the context of hearing and responding to the cry of the poor and the cry of the earth, where you move beyond charity and into mutual aid and justice. And the main charism of our community is teaching contemplative prayer. What is possible online? What's possible is that every person in the community meets once a week uh, for an hour-long meeting that combines 12 steps, Lexio, accountability, and then everyone is bound by a rule of life and some people check in with each other every day. And then once a month, there is a communal retreat. And then twice a year, people come in person for extended times to be in person. Uh, and the methodology for all of that also includes a lot of stuff, not just from 12 steps, but also CPE, uh, the grounding processes, offering each other uh, feedback, really learning how to sit uh, in a circle, put all of our crap on the table and spend years uh, being with it, helping each other to really move deeper into intimacy with God, where they can begin mm -hmm. to hear and see how God is calling them and who God is calling them to be. Mm -hmm. So I think that actually in that sense, a lot of the things are possible in line. For us, the goal for those who are vowed members is to become leaders who will then start their own contemplative, small contemplative groups, projects, and communities. The goal is not to produce leaders who function in the marketplace of spirituality, where you have to constantly be thinking about gig economy, writing the next book, building a platform, and entering kind of the capitalist <laughs> spiritual enterprise, becoming spiritual entrepreneurs, but rather people who function in a vowed community where when they start their own community, that's an independent community, but led by a leader who is within the system of accountability and mutual support. And all of our staff, and we've made a commitment to this early on, is free, uh, including retreats, 
and also based on the mutual aid system. And it's a four-year process of formation before people discern leadership with seasonal vows and then live vows. Mm -hmm. It's like for us, and like the Benedictine spirituality allows us to build a proper frame and rhythm of life. The Carmelite ideal allows us to take that mystical flight and to understand the map of the spiritual journey. And then the Franciscan way encourages us to really see that this needs to result in a different kind of alternative life. And then finally, I think there are two other sort of elements of that spirituality. One is creation-centered and liberation theologies through which lens we see all of those traditions and then the 12 steps methodology which is our chosen method for the conversion of life mm. and everyone goes through those 12 steps every year within the small group within the community circle back to the, that conversation about power structures and remembering your being an anarchist in your younger years. What are the, the blessings and challenges of starting all this at a cathedral? I'm thinking most monastic communities have arisen on the fringes of the church world. So what's it like to be doing something at, at least geographically at the, the heart of it? We're, I think we're very blessed to be at the cathedral, which is the center of the diocese. And at the same time, we see ourselves as being on the edge of the uh, inside. And our bishop is very supportive of it. Of course, he himself uh, has been a monastic, so he understands that very well. And a lot of it is we have an amazing dean who's also a member and a co-founder of our community who, you know, himself has been arrested many times at Occupy Wall Street and other places and created one of the, helped to create one of the largest, I think, if not the largest mutual aid action uh, in, in the history of the U.S. In, in Brooklyn. So I think that we had all the pieces that just unexpectedly came together in that place. And of course, traditionally, our cathedral has been, it's one of the first Garden City, one of the first cathedral towns in, in the U.S. And the goal for it was to essentially have priests that would live as a religious community almost, would meet a few times a day for prayers at the cathedral and then spend the rest of their time ministers, ministering in Queens, Brooklyn and Long Island because their diocese includes Queens, Brooklyn, and Long Island. One thing to also remember is that even though we were founded in an Episcopal church and the Anglican ethos is very present, we are an ecumenical mm -hmm. community. So we have priests and clergy from different denominations, including Catholic, Pentecostal, Evangelical, Methodist, Anglican. We have lay people from all the denominations. We have people who are clergy in other traditions who, who identify as dual belonging, Buddhist and Christian or something similar. And we have spiritual but not religious. The thing about our community is that we're not inviting people into a specific theology. We are inviting people into a specific way of practice that is Christian, but one can hold that in many different ways. Accountability mm. and process and practice replaces the doctrinal element of it, even though our practices are very Christian in many ways, and every day people meditate in scripture. Uh, and and do Lexio and all of that stuff. Uh, but I think the tendency is less about doctrine and more about being invited into an experience of intimacy with God. Then as a community, we can name that experience for each and every one of us and see how the rest of the church stuff relates to that as the goal of life is to experience that intimacy, to be transformed by that, and to become an icon of Christ in the world. 
So that's where yeah. we're at. And the cathedral is also a very unique place. And a lot of it is really due to the leadership of uh, the bishop and the dean. The dean is uh, Michael Sniffen, who's just really an extraordinary leader. And it's beautiful to be in that extraordinary place that is really a place of pilgrimage uh, also with an understanding that's our mother house but we are now all over the country right now in our community we have about 100 people in different phases of formation or discernment with about around 30 or so preparing for live vows and we do very little in terms of public programming because our main focus is really to train people who are committed practitioners. And it sounds like you measure success when the bishop calls you into his office to say, how's it going? It's really ultimately in the long term, it'll be about how many leaders spring up who are starting their own contemplative. Yeah. I mean, you know, when conversations with the bishop, what the bishop cares about is are people learning how to pray? That's mm -hmm. his I think metric, I don't want to speak for him, but I think that he's someone who cares about everyone encountering God and being changed by that. I think that is really his main metric, whether it happens for many or whether it happens for just some. And I think that that's what oftentimes, unfortunately, the church is forgetting. I hear all the time about if only the church could have a marketing new marketing campaign, if only we could get more people in. More people for what? If we've forgotten <laughs> how to pray, how to invite people into an experience of intimacy with the divine. Why even bother? Let's just close down the thing. If we can't offer that, then we're not offering uh, very much. And I think our bishop really understands uh, the power of the encounter that one can have with the divine. How I know one of the principles or part of the vows is digital minimalism. And I know our back in, in the back and forth of trying to schedule this, I, I can't remember your exact words, but it pointed just how much time you have to spend on administrative stuff. I'm wondering if you do experience a tension between being a a monastic or new monastic and the director of a program and a, a priest in a cathedral and how you negotiate that or maybe it's as simple as you just take the vow and follow it yeah it's a it's always a negotiation a few months ago i had a, a conversation with one of my mentors who's a hermit who lives in a very small hermitage community and he said you always have to readjust your schedule we're always struggling with that here. All they do is just protect the silence. So I think it's just a human thing to keep on fine-tuning things. I think that I'm getting better at it. And as the community grows, we also have more help. Mm -hmm. um, and starting the day with contemplative prayer, stopping the day at 12 for contemplative mass, and then ending the working day with, uh, with contemplative prayer really helps. I also have the benefit that I live with a person, my wife, who's a former Buddhist nun, who was a nun for 15 years in the community of Thich Nhat Hanh. And before that, she grew up in the Christian community that did monasticism for families. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like whenever I fall off, she helps me to get back. <laughs> this is one of those bonus questions at the end, but I'm curious how, how marriage has changed your faith. Both of us got married in our 40s. <laughs> yes, I think that marriage showed me that I used to think that I already have worked on a lot of things uh, mm. in myself, uh, and I actually see that I haven't. <laughs> and I think that it's a beautiful gift to have that loving mirror where you can always be witnessed. And I think that before marriage, I had a very active, but also very sort of solitary life with periods of silence and contemplative prayer and a lot of service. Uh, but I think I was able to uh, not be witnessed on days when uh, I wasn't doing really well. Mm. Uh, and now I am witnessed by a very loving, patient, supportive person. And 
that means that I have to really see it myself <laughs> and, and name it and acknowledge it. And it's, oh boy, there's some work I got. And that's a gift. I remember talking to English new monastics a few years ago. And in the US, we talk a lot about new monasticism, but not very many communities actually came into being. So I remember telling some of the English new monastics that in the US, it's really more about new monasticism is more about contemplative prayer where people just do it on their own, you know. This guy, I remember one of the leaders looked at me and was just like, that just sounds American individualism. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's true. Something happens in community of deep relationality, even if that community is where you meet with your community once or twice a week. For a deep process, just would happen when you go to therapy or for spiritual direction or whether you live with someone. I'm curious about your experience. I'm much more a work in progress than I ever realized. And it's a gift and it's humbling. And also, I guess with two little kids, I just have a lot more play in my life. I spend a lot less time alone for better and for worse as an introvert. But I'm delighted to be married. I think it's been a gift in so many areas of my life, including my spiritual life. And it does make me wonder, are there people with young kids in your community? Yeah. I can just imagine the schedule may be a challenge. I can pray morning prayer, but I have to do it at 5.30 a.m. And I haven't figured out yeah. anything. Rare. So there are people uh, with small kids in our community. And we're very serious about our rule of life. But also people constantly are fine-tuning that as well in terms of how that rule can live in in their lives usually that involves quite a bit of experimentation for some people doing a week of silent retreat each year with small kids is just not possible so we work with that with an understanding that the goal is to grow into it and also to turn your time with your kids into spiritual practice i think monasticism also has a big shadow and we have to acknowledge that and the shadow is to want to just check out uh, and leave the room when things get complicated. It's, I remember listening to one of those talks by Thomas Merton, who was commenting to his novices about what happens at a monastery. I remember he was saying, like, solitude for us meant that we pretended that those around us mm, don't exist. Mm. And I think that now we have a different understanding of community. And hopefully through new monasticism, as well as some of the wonderful experiments with traditional monasticism, we are understanding that checking out is not really an option. Mm. The traditional monastic vows are poverty, obedience, and chastity. And what you were sharing just now makes me think about obedience, which is ultimately about authority. And how do you all negotiate authority in the community? Yeah, so we don't have one leader and we don't have figureheads in our community. Mm-hmm. Everything is the work of community, including training, and the founders are going through the same spiritual formation as everyone else. The founders are also taking vows at the same time as everyone else after four years of formation. So for us, authority and obedience, which is part of our rule, but our main kind of framework is the rule of life that defines how we are and who we are. And obedience means mutual listening. We see it not as life-denying thing, but life-giving thing, where together through prayer and conversation, we can discern what are the right decisions for each person. Like the way discernment for priesthood happens in For example, in the Episcopal Church, where many people are involved and we go on a journey together, uh, trusting that we will know when we know. Mm -hmm. And how about poverty? I assume you all aren't taking vows of poverty, but what is the rules wisdom around money? Yeah, the rules wisdom of money is not very specific in our fourth year of formation through the Franciscan Charism, the whole year is spent on 12 steps. 
through the lens of many attachments and also relationship to justice. So it's seen as a journey that every year or every time you go through that process, you can go deeper and you can simplify for your particular state of life. And we have some people who are celibate, who are living like traditional monastics, but not necessarily at a monastery, and some people who have families. That's like famously Mother Teresa said to someone who wanted to join her community, but then decided to get married. Uh, she said, you actually, if you have children, if you, you have to have things. Mm. Uh, you shouldn't be, you know, just owning two habits or two pairs of pants. So we try to navigate that. What is the right thing for every person with an understanding that we are meant to be moving towards simplicity uh, versus the other way around? Wow. What do you feel like you know now that you didn't know? I'm not sure how many years ago. Was it four years ago you launched the center? Mm -hmm. What have you learned or what are you wrestling with that you never would have anticipated wrestling with? First of all, we did not anticipate that many people joining will be joining from all over the country or all over the world. We can't really accommodate people from some regions of the world simply because it doesn't work in terms of the schedule. Uh, I wish we could because we've had people joining from Asia and Latin America. Latin America is quite easy because it's dissimilar, you know. Um, so it was a big surprise that that's how it happened. And a lot of it was related to COVID. We were hoping to launch a local community, but this happened. And so our big question mark was, can this work? Can intimacy and real connectedness be generated? And now four years into it, I'm seeing so many changes in people's lives. And I'm very humbled by that because I see what can happen when we make a commitment to each other, to really sharing our insights, our burdens and our lives in this kind of a way where we have a framework for it, where we can acknowledge together our powerlessness, invite God to be the power in our lives, and then just keep on cleaning up our lives, uh, trusting that integrity can be born in us, in our midst. So I think that's like one of the big lessons that spiritual life is not that difficult. All we need is just a few friends to pray with, to share our lives with. All we need is just the sacraments. All we need is just the daily practice that can allow us to bring all of our stuff to God and then just simply resting in God's presence with all of that. And step by step, change and transformation do really happen, like I've seen it. In terms of challenges is... We're doing our best to not be operating in the spiritual marketplace that says to people, you can have as much enlightenment as you can afford. We want to be offering everything for free. And so far, we have been able to do that. So our community retreats, people even get reimbursed for their flights when they come to those retreats. This way, uh, money does not stand on the way of people participating in community, receiving spiritual formation, and then living their lives in this kind of a new monastic context. Uh, and the challenge is, of course, that it that requires a lot of gymnastics and fundraising and other things. And that is one question. What are the financial models for communities, for spiritual projects, for ministries, that can be different to the capitalist framework where everyone wants to become the new guru or whatever, write a new best-selling book and then travel around the country, all around the world, delivering talks, which means that to be invited again, you need to make sure that you're selling something, which by definition, then you're transforming people who come to hear you into customers. That kind of methodology, I think, 
uh, produces fans, not necessarily practitioners or friends. And I think what we're trying to figure out is how to um, be community members, how to be friends, how to be practitioners versus just fans of a new book or a new teacher. And that's a challenge. Yeah. What are the models? I think there's a 12-step model. People chip in a small amount and there's very low overhead. There's no building. I imagine there's a model where a diocese funds you and maybe you can be funded by church grants and institutions, or there's what you're saying, like a book tour, shiny new object in the spirituality world. And you talks and lectures. So in our case, we are very much, I can send you our community's 12 traditions. Mm -hmm. We are very much rooted in the 12 steps methodology. And that's why our goal is not to have a lot of staff, is not to try to conquer the market, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but rather a lot of labor is voluntary labor to keep low overhead. And it helps to be at the cathedral, but at the same time, we're not necessarily, uh, we have some individual funders and, and foundations, and they're mainly Buddhist and some Christian. I think Buddhists and Sufis oftentimes understand better the need for contemplative renewal within the church Mm -hmm. than our own people in our own Christian tradition. But a lot of our staff is rooted on 12 steps, and that's why our kind of overall goal is to really uh, help to generate, contribute to a decentralized network of small contemplative projects where people can experience and encounter God and be changed Mm -hmm that with an understanding that needs to lead to some kind of a different way of showing up in the world and and responding to the world's cries. So for example, in our community, also in the 12-step, we do not make political statements. Mm-hmm. One of our big values or virtues is justice. But as a community, as a as an organization, the Center for Spiritual Imagination, we do not, similarly to AA, endorse any cause. Yeah, my our main thing is to teach people contemplative prayer, mm-hmm. uh, and we have people in our community who, on some issues, maybe would be on two sides of the picket line, but they're deep mm-hmm. friends uh, because they've done the work of seeing how each of their positions. They were able to arrive at it through a process of accountability, deep prayer, and proper discernment. And so as a result, they can be friends, they can respect uh, other and and see each other's as each other as siblings in the community, so to speak. And how, how do people get involved? They've heard all this and say, I want to be part. So people just you can get in touch with us every every couple of times each year. We have where people can enter the process just for a few weeks and taste what the prayer life in the community is and then see whether this is something that they want to continue. And spiritualimagination.org is our website. People can just uh, email us. We also have some public events. If you're in Manhattan or Brooklyn, we have a weekly meditation in Greenpoint at the Church of the Ascension, which is our Brooklyn location. We have a contemplative Eucharist every Tuesday or most Tuesdays at the cathedral. And we also have some public programs like right now, we're just completing exploring the incarnation method of prayer, which is a six week long course every Tuesday night at 5.30. We have public contemplative prayer online. In addition to that, we just a week ago or two weeks ago, we had Richard Rohr with us for a Saturday morning program. On February 10th, we have Interreligious Wisdom and Spiritual Imagination with Dr. John Tatanimal, who's a professor at Union Theological Seminary, who both sort of practices within a Buddhist tradition and a Christian tradition, and who's also an Episcopal priest or an Anglican priest. For Lent, we have public Visio Divina every Thursday at 5.30 for a few weeks. And then we have Dream On, which is looking at your dreams as a sacred text, engaging in Lexio. That's done by one of our community members who's 
who's a Jungian analyst. Then we have Eco-Womanist Spirituality in April with Dr. Melanie, Melanie Harris and also Black Lives in Contemplation, which is really a new community that's emerging within our community where the gifts of the Black tradition are really celebrated and and brought into conversation with the larger contemplative tradition. And that's also led by one of our community members, Josue. What an amazing list, Adam. I, is there anything else that comes to mind that you want to share that we may not have covered? No, I think that's good. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much, Adam. Oh, if you'd be willing to close us in a, a prayer, that would be great. Yeah, sure. I would actually love to offer a prayer that I really love. It's a poem prayer and done by Dorothy Soleil. Um, so let us just place ourselves in the presence of the divine. If you're listening, you can close your eyes, take a couple of deep breaths, inviting God to be here with us. And this is the prayer from Dorothy Soleil. Dream me, God. It's not you who should solve my problems, God, but I yours, God of the asylum seekers. It's not you who should feed the hungry, but I who should protect your children from the terror of the banks and armies. It's not you who should make room for the refugees, but I who should receive you hardly hidden God of the desolate. You dreamed me, God, practicing walking upright and learning to kneel down, more beautiful than I am now, happier than I dare to be, freer than our country allows. Don't stop dreaming me, God, because I don't want to stop remembering that I am your tree planted by the streams of living water. Amen. All right. Look forward to the day we see each other in person. God bless. God bless to you. Go to DuncanHilton.net to find a full archive of podcasts and my weekly newsletter. You can also find links there to daily prayer and meditation groups. This podcast is not supported by grants or salary, but by listeners like you. You can also find a link at duncanhilton.net to make a donation. Questions, comments, and suggestions for guests can be emailed to duncan at duncanhilton.net.